This is Salt and Spine. I just want people to know that like cooking can be fun. And you just have, there's a little bit of work you have to do on the front end to get yourself nice and equipped. And that's what this book is going to help you with. But then it's going to be really fucking fun and it's not going to be a chore anymore. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. You just heard from today's guest, Molly Boz. Now, Molly became well-known as an editor in the Bon Appetit Test Kitchen, where she hosted videos on the magazine's YouTube page. You might know her from the time she butchered an entire pig, or when she learned how to cook ostrich eggs. Now, Molly grew up in upstate New York, near the Culinary Institute of America, but it wasn't until later on as a college student that Molly learned to love food on a study abroad program in Italy. When Molly graduated from Skidmore College, she took a job at Beacon Hill Bistro, learning from Jason Bond, where she says she really got her chops. And now Molly is the author of her first cookbook, Cook This Book, Techniques That Teach and Recipes to Repeat. Molly really pushes the bounds of cookbook writing, including QR codes that link to videos teaching you simple skills like dicing onions and seasoning cuts of meat. She believes that we should all be eating delicious food at home and that we ought to be using a lot more salt. Now, Molly joined us remotely for this week's show. Stick around. We're closing today's episode with a secret ingredient game, of course. So let's head now to our virtual studio where Molly Boz joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Molly. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Thank you so much for having me. We're thrilled to have you um, to talk about your new cookbook, your first cookbook. Super exciting. Congratulations. Um, but first, you. before we do that, we always like to talk a little bit more about you and your life and sort of what led you to this moment. Um, so let's start sort of at the very beginning. You grew up, I think, in New York, yeah? Yeah, in upstate New York in the Hudson okay. Valley. And what kind of role did food play in your life when you were growing up? Were you really into food? Were you involved in cooking as a kid? Like, what memories do you have of that time? It wasn't really a part of my childhood. I mean, I obviously ate, but um, it wasn't like I didn't grow up in like a foodie household. My mom was making like ragu all day. It wasn't like that. We ate pretty like simply growing up. And it wasn't until I was in high school and then really into college that I, my mind sort of like opened up to the world of food and cooking and eating and sort of the difference between eating okay and eating really well. And I think it had always kind of been of interest to me. I think at a pretty young age, I started looking at food magazines and I always, I knew about gourmet. This was when gourmet magazine was still around and I always sort of like dreamt about it all, but it really wasn't until college that I put any of it into action in terms of a career. Yeah, and I you studied art history, is that right? Yeah, at Skidmore College. At Skidmore. So at the time, like transition from high school to college, you're you're getting more interested in food, but definitely not on your mind as like a career at that point. Yeah, like I think I spent the summer before going to college working in a restaurant, and I um, would work on the line one day a week, but it was wasn't it, it hadn't like fully clicked yet. And then mm-hmm. I went to college, and I. Um, did a semester abroad in Italy. My, I think it was the spring semester of my sophomore year. So like pretty soon into my time in college. And Uh I lived with this little lady, Graciela, who like by now is probably famous because I've been on a lot of podcasts and I always talk about her and I just like want, I need to get to her because I'm like, you don't understand how many times I've talked about you, Graciela. Like the world (laughs) knows who you are. I need to find her. In any case, she was a, she was um, an Italian grandmother 
who was widowed. Graciela was my homestay mother and she was retired so she didn't have a job and she would just go to the market in Florence every day and come home with like a modest amount of food because she wasn't very, she wasn't like over the top with her food and cooking, but everything that she would come home with was so fresh and so delicious just in and of itself. And then she would make these really simple meals for dinner and we would sit down together at her kitchen table and she didn't speak a lick of English. And so I like really had to learn how to speak Italian and it was like very slow going and there were a lot of awkward silences at first. So we, we were able to spend a lot of time just like eating. Like I just remember like it being pretty quiet and being able to like really focus on the food, which was so delicious. That semester like kind of solidified it for me. The food that I ate while abroad in Italy, which is just like obviously so cliche, but like, sorry, the food's delicious over yeah, there. Right. And I was like, okay, like I honestly don't feel like I'm in the right career path right now. I'm going to finish my degree because I think that's what my parents probably want for me. And I'm not quite sure like how to make food a career yet. But then Mm -hmm. literally the day after I graduated college, moved to Boston and got a job in a kitchen at the Beacon Hill Bistro, which was my first full-time line cook job. I was still very green. I do not know why they hired me truly. I don't think I was the appropriate hire for the job, but (laughs) I learned really fast. And maybe like, I don't know, Jason Bond was the chef and maybe he just was like, I think she's a fast learner. Like she gets it. I, I really don't know because I... It would honestly honestly be painful to watch myself trail during that that first interview. <laughs> and that's where I like really got my chops or where I really established my skills in the kitchen professionally. Did you cook with Graziella or did you just eat her food? A little bit, yeah. Like I think it was like after the first I was there for maybe like six months. And after the first like two months or so when I could actually like somewhat communicate with her, because we didn't get much accomplished in our conversations at first. But I was taking Italian and I knew how to speak French. It was like, I could like muscle through it. But once we became more comfortable and I, and we understood each other better, then I started asking her for her recipes. And like, whenever we would have people over, she might have like some of her children over for dinner. I would try and help her out in the kitchen. And so she like let me in little by little. And actually one of her recipes, and this was something that she made on a weekly, if not maybe more frequently basis was her cherry tomato pasta sauce, which was so simple. It was just cherry tomatoes from the market, like ridiculous amounts of olive oil. I mean, like maybe more olive oil than cherry tomatoes, which is so Italian and like, yeah. And, uh, and then basil and garlic and that was it. And it was so good. And she would make it with, I forget what the shape, casarette. She would make it always Ah. with casarette. And so then I put a version of it in my book. But I think even my version of it has less olive oil than hers because I know that an American reader opening this book and like seeing that I call for one full cup of olive oil for like a sauce that serves four is like gonna fly. She was just, you know, <laughs> yeah. she didn't care. She wasn't calorie counting. Right, right. Did you have you stayed in touch with her? I'm fascinated by her. No, and I keep every time that I bring her up, I'm like, I gotta uh-huh. get in touch. I gotta get in touch. I don't think I have access to my Skidmore email anymore, which is like how I was connected to her. So I need to figure out maybe going back to Skidmore and talking to the program, to people who run the program abroad there. I'm sure they have her information on file because she was like part of the program. I mean, I I have to get her the book. 
you know what? I'm putting yeah. it on my to-do list right yeah. now. <laughs> right now. It's like, I cannot add it, put add it to the list. out any longer. It's, it's I know. And she, she's in the book. I mean, yeah, she's mentioned yeah. in the book. I feel like, yeah. Yeah. So you you graduate, you go take this job at Beacon Hill Bistro. I know you've talked about this before, but the thought of culinary school, does it cross your mind and you just think no? Or is it just not something that even crosses your mind and you just start working right away? It definitely crosses my mind. I think maybe even when I was still in college, I, like when I would come home for break, I lived in the Hudson Valley and the Culinary Institute of America is in Hyde Park. So it was like 25, 30 minutes from my house. And so yeah. I would always try and go there. I loved going on the campus because it was kind of dreamy to me, this whole like culinary world. After taking that first year and working in a restaurant, I then pivoted really hard on my opinion about culinary school and was like, wow, I do not need to go to culinary school. I just learned so much in the last year. And I know because I've looked at culinary school curriculums, how long it takes and, and like what you're learning at what pace. And I just felt like, I really made the right decision here. I don't need to go spend thirty or forty thousand dollars to get an education when I could work my way through it and like make ten dollars an hour, but at least I'm not losing money. And yeah. I actually once got into a fight in a bar with someone about this exactly because he was like, we we ended up chatting, and he was like, my daughter is like applying to culinary school. And I was like, I have advice for you. And I really felt strongly about the fact that like he didn't need to be spending his money on it. And it got kind of like hot and heavy. I think I kind of like overstepped my bounds, but I was just so passionate about it. And then I had to leave the bar. Yeah. So, anyway, I'm pretty yeah. anti-culinary school. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great perspective to have because you do have a lot of folks who are in your camp and there's a lot of folks who really found value in it for themselves personally and really are advocates for it. So I think that's an important thing to note. So you start working in restaurants, you're working in restaurants for a while. What is the thing that prompts you to decide I'm going to sort of make the shift into food media? Is there a moment? Is it gradual? Like, what does that look like? It's twofold. It's one that like, in my mind, I've always held food magazines as the gold star of what you could do with a food career. And like I said, I used to pour over gourmet. And then when that closed, I started getting into Bon Appetit. And I just like, there was something so magical about the world of the food publication. It felt really like inaccessible and so far away, but so dreamy. And so it was it's yeah. always been something I wanted to do. I never actually wanted to own a restaurant. I, I wanted to spend my youthful years working in restaurants and like just really making sure I got, had my chops. But I maybe toyed around with it like once in a while, but I, I always kind of knew this is the lifestyle for me. And so it became, it came to a point where I was like, I don't want to have Monday and Tuesday off. All my friends have the weekends off. I don't have a social life. And if I don't ultimately want to own a restaurant, like what am I still doing working in restaurants? Let's figure it out then. Cause I'm not going to leave the food industry, but if it's not going to be a restaurant, might as well pivot now. Yeah. And so that is when I pivoted into working as a private chef because I was like, let me try this on. And I did a little bit of catering with this woman, Amanda Elliott. We sort of partnered up and did that for a while. But I really, I burnt out on that pretty quickly because that it was so uncreative for me because the demands of the clients were just had to take precedence over like my creativity in the kitchen. And so like that didn't feel right. I've always been like okay. a creative person. I come from a creative family. Like I feel like I have a lot inside me. Then I was like, well, I'm going to give this food media track a shot. 
And so I knew that one way to go down that was through the food styling angle and being involved in like the photography side. And I sort of convinced myself that that was the right thing for me because I was like, you're, you're an art history student. Your dad's a photographer. Your whole family is visual. Like, this is perfect. You'll make food for photographs and they'll go in the magazines. Like, this is the perfect job for you. It ties everything together. I ended up assisting um, a bunch of food stylists and then eventually going out on my own as a lead food stylist. And again, I hit this wall where I was like, I'm not being creative right now. I'm being creative in the sense of like, I'm looking at the composition of this photo. I'm not being creative in the sense of cooking my own food and like putting whatever that like spark inside of me is out into the world. And so then it was clear that like, I need to be developing my own recipes. There's got to be an output here. And so my next path was through recipe testing. And so I got a job as a freelancer, like someone took a chance on me again. And I did one shift as a freelancer at Epicurious, the sister magazine to Bon Appetit or the sister brand. And I'd never recipe tested before. Actually, like I'd never, I didn't really like follow recipes ever. And that's kind of what the intro of my book is about. It's how like I never used to follow recipes. And now I'm just like a hardcore recipe purist. But that was my like entryway into the world of food magazines and publishing. And Epicurious is on the same floor as Bon Appetit. I would get to walk through the Bon Appetit test kitchen. It was as grandiose as you think it would be, just like windows on the world down there at the World Trade Center. And like, I remember leaving work that day and being like, this is it. Like, I am here and I have to do whatever I can to stay here. So like, I got hired for one day. But I was like, this, whatever this is, this is magic. And I feel alive and I have to be a part of this. And so like, I got hired again for another day. And then little by little, just kind of like worked my way into that whole world and Bon Appetit and Epicurious merged. And so there was a lot of back and forth between the two brands. And then through a lot of different things, I ultimately then ended up as a food editor at Bon Appetit magazine, my dream job. Yeah. Amazing. And I love how you're so attentive to like making a change when something doesn't feel right for you. That's like making those pivots. Yeah. You, you, so you didn't go to culinary school. You don't have that professional training that some folks have that they have to try and then shed when they want to like talk to home cooks and create recipes for home cooks. But I'm curious when you moved into that role, like when you became a food editor at Bon Appetit, were there things you learned in in that role about how other people cook and how home cooks approach things that were like new lessons for you or things that were different than how you approached food? For sure. Like, I think there was actually a pretty big adjustment phase where I had to basically shed myself of any like restaurant ego that I had of being a chef and like being able to be like a badass line cook and cook without recipes. It just, that whole mentality, it's, so different from the mentality of creating recipes for home cooks. And it definitely took a period, even when like pitching recipes for the magazine, like if there was an ideas meeting and I had to pitch, like my inclination was to pitch like really restauranty food. Cause I was like, this is good food. This is like, I'll be respected for pitching these ideas because I come from restaurants and that's the highest honor kind of. And I quickly sure. learned that wasn't going to fly. No one was interested in my restaurant ass pitches. No home cooks are making restaurant food. And so it took a total like mentality shift. And even now, years later, 
I don't cook like I used to. I don't cook the way I did when I worked in restaurants where things are like piecemeal and I'm making these different sauces and these different garnishes and these things. Everything is so much more rustic now. And I think a home cook, I, I feel like I was once a restaurant chef and now I'm just a professional home cook. Did you expect to that when, I mean, when you walked into Bon Appetit or Epicurious that first day, did you ever, ever envision that like you would become the brand? Because now you yourself like are really a brand. Oh my God. No, definitely Was that a not. gradual would, thing? It really wasn't very gradual. I'm not going to lie. No, okay. Like, I mean, it, it was all like it happened overnight, but like in the grand scheme of my life, it happened so quickly. And I, I, I got my role as a senior food editor at Bon Appetit at a really transitional time when Bon Appetit's YouTube channel was blowing up and they had right. always made videos or they'd been making videos for a long time, but they like weren't clicking or resonating with the viewers. And then like all of a sudden they kind of started doing this way more casual kind of like the office style approach to shooting in the test kitchen. And it wasn't so like confined and cookie cutter and in a box. And yeah. that really started to resonate with people. That's the YouTube channel that everybody knew and loved. But I moved into my role like right around the time that that was really taking off. And so it was just kind of good timing that like the video team was really ramping up. And there are a very small number of people working in the Bon Appetit test kitchen. Like when I got there, I think there was like five or six of us as editors. That's not that many people. There's only so many videos that any one person can do. And so naturally, the video team was like, Molly, do you want to host a video? And it wasn't long after I moved into the role. And I was like, yes. I mean, like, I'm not going to say no to this opportunity. Yes. But also I'm scared shitless. Yeah. And, and then it kind of just like took off from there. So it was really just a matter of timing. And I think Bon Appetit as a brand really, really blew up over the next two years or three years, I guess, while I was there. And I was just kind of like, whoa, I'm going to ride this wave, I guess. And it was, it was totally bananas. It really did feel like from one day to the next, I was just this like meek little girl being like, uh, I'll test a recipe for you to like, all of a sudden people being like, associating me with Bon Appetit and like maybe and also like recognizing me on the street and being like, and like fangirling over me, which I'm just like, what, what is going on here? It just was not yeah. a subtle shift at all. And I think that anyone at BA would say that like, it went zero to 100, like that. Yeah, we, we talked to Carla uh, over a year ago, and we talked to Claire, and it feels like it really just was like an almost an overnight thing, but not quite an overnight thing. Like it just, yeah. yeah like one year, kind of it was the course of, of a year. Yeah. Yeah. So crazy. So at what point do you decide that you want to write a cookbook? And at what point does that start to feel real? Because you said you were scared shitless at the first video. And then I noticed in your, your book and the acknowledgements too, you sort of alluded to maybe being scared shitless of writing a cookbook as well. Um, when does that when does that come in yeah I always wanted to write a cookbook especially once I was like okay I'm doing this food media thing and I got an email from an editor at Clarkson Potter Jen Sitt who is now my editor spoiler alert but she reached out to me and I just remember this was I guess two and a half or three years ago now and she reached out to me I was like hi, I'd love to meet with you. I'm a big fan. And I have an idea for you that I'd like to share with you. And I lost my shit. I mean, I never in a million years thought that a publisher would come to me like in my head, I was like, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this the traditional way. I'm gonna work on a book proposal. 
I'm going to try and like get it in front of someone who cares. And it's going to take a really long time. And I don't know if I'll ever get it there, but like, I'll do it someday when I'm ready, but I'm not ready yet. But then this email came in and I was like, Oh my God, like she came to meet. This is so crazy. So I took the meeting and that just lit a fire in me. And she actually, the idea that she came to the table with was that she wanted me to like basically be the face of a cookbook for Bon Appetit. So like a Bon Appetit by Molly Baugh's cookbook. And Uh I like, after thinking about it long and hard was like, I don't want my first book to be anybody's book, but my own. And obviously I was closely associated with the brand. It would have made a lot of sense to have like a personality, a personality driven cookbook come from that brand. That would be like the next extension of Bon Appetit. But I really was like, I want to do this my, my way. I don't want anyone over at Bon Appetit to be telling me what kinds of recipes that I need to be developing for this book that's like a collab. And so I was like, I need to get an agent because I don't know what to do here. And so I got an agent and she like talked me through it all. And she talked to this editor and then she told the editor basically like, sit tight, give us two or three months. Molly's going to work on some like a proposal for you. And like, let's discuss the Molly cookbook then. And so in Uh the next three months, I worked on my proposal and I did not have my idea. Like I, there was, there's no point in my life up until this book deal where I was like, I know what the book that I'm going to write is. And so this really magical thing happened in those three months when right after like that fire was lit inside me where I was like, I have to write a book. It spilled out of me. Like it sounds so romanticized, but that is, that was my experience where I like sat down and my agent prompted me with a bunch of questions. And she was like, just answer these. Don't worry about the proposal yet. Just sit down and think about these questions that I have for you. Okay. And I sat down and I started writing and I was just, it was just pouring out of me. I had so much to say about every question. And all of a sudden, like the the whole book just took shape. It was a really crazy experience. I was a furious, frantic proposal writing crazy person. And I sent all the answers back to her And she went into the questionnaire and she basically just wiped the questions, deleted the questions, and then took all Uh the paragraphs and rearranged them, like all of my writing and was like, here's your proposal. And I was like, this is magic. Like, it was so crazy. I still think about it all the time. And my agent doesn't even remember. She's like, I sent you questions. And I was like, you don't remember this? That was like the most magical thing that ever happened to me. You like saw into my brain and you were like, here are the things I need to ask this person. And, and the result of that is going to be a book. Like, yeah, that's huge. That um, is huge. It was just yeah. so cool. I should go back actually and look at the questions. Cause I don't even remember what they were. But in any case, yeah. a few, like, you know, a month and a half later, I was like, okay, I know what I need to say. I have like an idea for how to structure this, how I want it broken down. Because the thing that was sort of tripping me up was just, what is your first book? Mm-hmm. sure maybe I'm gonna write a lot of books but like what is the first one the first one has to be sort of broad and it's got to cover a lot because you can't go like too specific in the first one but also how do you right. say everything you want to say in a book and then now I'm dealing with that with the second book where I'm like 
I wrote the book. What's the next book? <laughs> right. But yeah, you so need those questions again. <laughs> I need those questions, but they have to be like the 2.0 questions. I know the second book is going to be kind of, and I'm going through it again. Sure. But yeah, it, it's just, um, it was a crazy process. We'll be right back with the second part of our conversation with Molly Boz. Don't go anywhere. Remember, you can follow us on Instagram at salt and spine. This week, you'll find a chance to win your own copy of Molly Boz's Cook This Book. And you'll also find her recipe for steak au poivre. We love sitting down with another of your and my favorite cookbook authors to tell the stories behind cookbooks each week. From Jacques Pepin and Nigella Lawson to Samin Nostrat and Carla Hall to today's guest, Molly Boz, Salt and Spine is the leading podcast featuring interviews with your favorite authors. Plus, we publish delicious and exclusive recipes, hold cookbook giveaways for listeners like you, and so much more. Salt and Spine truly brings cookbooks to life, and we can only do it thanks to listeners like you. You can join the Salt and Spine community today and support our effort to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content starting at just $2 a month. Find out more and join the Salt and Spine community at patreon.com backslash salt and spine. And now back to our conversation with Molly Boz, author of Cook This Book. And how do you describe the the book or the goal of your work with this book to someone? So you you this proposal came to you, you had this month and a half process, you're like, okay, this is it, I've got it. Now the book is is here, it's hitting shelves and what is your like elevator pitch if someone's like, why should I buy your book? Or what does it do for me as a home cook? So there's a few things. Number one, and like before we just get into the content, I just want people to have fun in the kitchen. I want it to not feel like a chore. I feel like that's kind of what it is for most people. Mm-hmm. And I just derive so much joy out of being in the kitchen and out of the experience of eating and like the the um, lead up to eating when you're like prepping and you're anticipating this meal and it's all coming together. Like that's what I live for. And I just want people to know that like cooking can be fun and you just have, there's a little bit of work you have to do on the front end to get yourself nice and equipped. And that's what this book is going to help you with, but then it's going to be really fucking fun and it's not going to be a chore anymore. And now you're going to know how to feed yourself and your family moving forward. Part of why I wrote this book was because I fear that our generation is not going to know how to cook because it's just far too easy to order in and do takeout and Postmates on demand and this and that. And it's honestly like oftentimes cheaper. And so this book is really my way of being like, let's have a good time while we're doing this. You're going to learn some shit. There's teachings here, but also it's going to be fun. And then you're going to set yourself up for the rest of your life so that you know how to feed your children when you have them. Because it's a little, it's a scary thought that a generation could not know how to cook really because they never had to out of necessity. And so then when it comes to having children and like feeding your family, you're kind of like relying on caviar and Postmates. I mean, right. there's something wrong with that picture. Yeah. So that's that. So that's kind of like my philosophy on cooking and like what I want readers to take away and what I want to encourage people towards. But the book itself is really, really technique driven. And so... It's broken up into a few chapters, obviously the recipes, but the recipes are strategic in the sense that every chapter aims to take a comprehensive look at whatever that chapter is about. So in the chicken chapter, there is one recipe that is representative of each technique that I think that a home cook needs to know in order to know everything there is about chicken. Obviously, Mm -hmm. like their technique is limitless and endless, but like there are basics that you have to learn in order to be able to like really be flexible and, and improvise in the kitchen. And so the chicken chapter will have a whole roast chicken 
and a poached chicken breast and chicken wings and crispy chicken thighs and braised chicken legs and yada yada. So that like, if you, if you cook your way through this whole book and each of the chapters, you've tried your hand at all the techniques that I think are fundamental to like a great foundation in cooking. And so that's the, that's the technique part of the book, but the recipes themselves, the way they are written are just packed with a lot more information than you may be used to seeing in recipes. And that's because I think that recipes expect too much of the home cook and that I know how much, what it takes to, to muster up the courage to get in the kitchen, to tackle a recipe that you've never seen before, that it's someone else's words, it's new ingredients, there's equipment, there's steps, there's time, there's so much going on, your brain is flooded. And that's really distracting. And it's really hard to learn anything when you're just trying to like get through the recipe and like make sure you don't fuck it up. And so these recipes have a lot more information packed into them, which is there to help answer questions for the home cook, for the reader, as they're cooking their way through. So instead of just blabbing at you and saying, chop these onions, sear this steak, stir this sauce, they go a step further in answering, anticipating the questions you might have and then answering them right within the text and saying, the reason I'm asking you to chop these onions this way is because you want them to be super fine so that they melt into the sauce at the end. And if you cut them larger, they'll be bitsy and textured and it will compete with the other flavors. And the, like the information that you need to know that you might as a home cook ask me if I were there. I can't be there. Sure. And so the best thing I can do is try and guess what you're going to ask and tell you in the recipe. And then to take it a step further, I've put QR codes into the recipes so that when I've asked you to chop an onion and I've told you why I'm asking you to chop an onion, but then you say to me, but I don't actually know how to chop an onion properly. I just kind of wing it every time. Then I also have an answer for you. Watch this video, use this QR code, pull up the video on your phone. It's 30 seconds or a minute long. I'm going to teach you how to chop an onion in the video. And then you can put your phone away and keep going in the recipe. So that's how the recipe part of this book, that whole like back section is formatted. But the front matter of the book, which I think is the part of the book that like most people just flip through because they're like, where's the photos? Where's the recipe? What am I making tonight? The front matter actually has some really important information. And I would just like to say to everyone who's listening, I really hope you read the front matter of the book because the education is not complete without it. And so Uh technique is one thing and we're going to, you're going to learn all of it in the recipes. Flavor is another thing. And that's not something that I've touched on in the recipes because I'm telling you what ingredients to use and I'm not asking you to think about flavor in the recipes, but the flavor section of the book, it's called how to make food taste great is about understanding flavor and the flavor profiles that your palate can perceive and then thinking about the ingredients in your cabinet, in your pantry, in whatever recipe you're making and understanding how they're interacting with one another and what role they're all playing in this the grand scheme of things. So like if you can look at an ingredient and categorize it by its prominent flavor profile, then when you hit a bump in a recipe where you're like, oh shoot, I don't have mustard. I Uh forgot to get the mustard. You're not jammed up because you can 
think about like, what is that mustard doing in this recipe? Like what, what purpose is it serving? What flavor profile is it like holding down in this recipe? And then what do I have on hand that I can replace it with? And so that's what the right. whole front matter flavor section is about is learning how to think critically about your ingredients and categorize them. A lot of the ingredients are categorized already in the book. There are lists so that you can just go and be like, I need something spicy. And there's a whole list of all these spicy ingredients that you probably have in your pantry, but you wouldn't even think of. And then there's a big section on salt because I am the salt queen. And I, (laughs) I hold that lack of seasoning is the number one culprit for undelicious food amongst home Mm -hmm. cooks. Like I think that people are quick to blame a recipe, not saying they're blaming my recipes, just like in general, (laughs) it's easy to be like, it wasn't, it didn't work. It wasn't right. It was meh. And it's like, was it properly seasoned? We need to check that first and foremost. And so there's an entire chapter on learning how to season and what it should feel like in your hands and how many fingers you should use, learning how to do the three finger pinch. There's a video that teaches you how to do the three finger pinch, which is a way of holding salt in your hands right within the right within the salt section. And there are little like challenges within there that sort of teach you how to learn what your personal threshold for salt and seasoning is. Mm-hmm. Because I think that people are so scared of over seasoning that they usually under season. Yeah, I mean, you even include a, a two page spread before the salt section that says stop in like huge letters, <laughs> you are legally required to read this section, because it's so important. <laughs> I know I after the book like went into its like first dummy. So it was like there or there was no more changes to be made. I was looking at that spread. And I was like, am I allowed to say that? Like, <laughs> am I allowed to like make a, a legal uh, blanket statement like that? Like, am I gonna get in trouble? There's no like asterisk that says just kidding, because I'm not kidding. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but I guess it remains to be seen. Yeah, well, it works. It, it draws people's attention and, and makes people stop. You touched on a lot of these things. But did you think so your cookbook is innovative in a lot of ways? I mean, the QR codes, we don't see that in almost any cookbooks, the way that you noted you format your recipes, so including the ingredient amounts in the list, but also in the context of the steps of the recipe too, the way you structure the ingredients by category sort of that applies, you know, to grocery store categories of where you might find things or where you might find things in your house. Were you thinking about all of those things as you were putting this cookbook together and the like, how do we make cookbooks better? Like, we're a show on cookbooks, obviously. So I'm always curious and like how you think about like, are you thinking about like, you're breaking the mold in some way? Or was that a just a natural thing? Definitely when it comes to the QR codes, when once that idea came about, I was like, I do not understand why this hasn't happened yet. It is so crazy to me. Like we live in a digital world. Everybody has their phone on them at all times. I know everyone has their phone with them in the kitchen, even when they're looking at a hardcover book. And it just seems like such a lost opportunity. And I really felt like knowing that my audience is millennial, Gen Z, like we are it is a young community for the most part and that those people are so digitally and technologically minded. I was like, how can I make this cookbook even more relatable to these people, to my fans, to my followers? And so that's where like the technology part of it sort of came into play in the book. And then as for the recipes and the way they're structured, I think just what I always try to do 
is put myself in the shoes of a home cook. And it's actually a lot harder to do than you would think because there's so much you take for granted as a professional cook. But basically, like my whole career at this point is now dedicated to trying to see things from a home cook's perspective, get in their shoes, and then tweak things on my end to better serve them. And so that's why the recipes are formatted the way they are. That's why instead of having the ingredients listed in the order they appear in the recipe, I'm saying, here are all the ingredients from the refrigerator. Because if you're going to go to the refrigerator, why don't you grab everything from the refrigerator at the same time? Or if you're in the, the dairy section of the supermarket, why don't you grab all the ingredients for this recipe that are dairy at the same time? And let's be efficient with your time. Because I think that efficiency is a huge part of being a great cook. And also, a lack of efficiency is what contributes to that sense of chaos that people associate with cooking and that that yeah. prevents them from wanting to cook. And so the more that I can organize things and kind of tweak things to their brains and the way that I think a home cook's brain functions from the shopping to the prepping to the questions they have, the more likely they are to pick up another recipe. It's all about eliminating barriers to entry. That's literally all I'm here to do is break down the barriers to entry for people. So you made the move to Patreon a while back um, after you left Bon Appetit. How has that changed? Has that changed things for you? I guess I should ask, has that changed things for you? And how in terms of like, are you getting more feedback from home cooks than ever before? Are you engaging with your your followers in a different way? Has your recipe development process changed? Like, what does that look like for you as someone who's sort of um, piloting this new way for recipe developers to engage? Definitely. It's such an amazing space for feedback. So for those of you who don't know what Patreon is, it's like a little world where a creator can put their content behind a paywall. And so in my case, I have a recipe club and it's a weekly recipe drop. And then there's other fun content behind this paywall that people pay for. But what you're really paying for is like access to this community of people. It's my recipes, yes, but it's also a community of people who are like-minded, who are interested in the same kinds of recipes, who are curious cooks. And can I see a lot of support between the patrons in the community, which is really awesome. Like uh, there's no possible way that I would be able to answer every single question that someone asked me on Patreon, but it's really amazing to see people jumping in and being like, I know the answer to that and I can answer it for this other person in the community. And so for me, that's like what's so beautiful about Patreon is, it's so much more personal than Instagram. Like if I were to just create recipes and put them on on Instagram, there's this anonymity and that has all been dissolved in this Patreon community that we're building. And then as far as the recipe development goes, it's the same process. If I'm not writing a cook, like I'm developing recipes for a cookbook, I'm developing recipes for Patreon. They're the same people who are buying my cookbook are in my Patreon club So I take the same approach to the recipes that I'm developing there because it's become like very systematic and formalized in in terms of like the format of my recipes and the way I think about them. And, And that's because these are all the same people. Like this community is actually just my community. And so yeah, I will write my recipes that way, no matter where they're living. Sure. You so you you launched the Patreon because you decided to leave your job at Bon Appetit and folks who listen to our show 
know what happened at Bon Appetit, went through this reckoning. We don't need to sort of rehash all of that. Folks can figure it out if you don't know. Um, but I did want to just ask you briefly, like, what did you learn from being part of that process of sort of a public reckoning in the food media world that happened at Bon Appetit that I think most folks realize was not like indicative of Bon Appetit's workplace only, right? Like parallels so many things that folks are dealing with across the food industry and across workplaces writ large. But like, what did you take away from that and your experience in making that decision to leave? I think my biggest takeaway was how blind I have been to some of the inequalities in the workplace. And part of that is because that's the the kind of system that we are brought up in, right? Like there's this lack of transparency and it's very taboo to like share amongst your colleagues what your salary is and what your deals are and whatever. And so I feel like that was the system I was brought up in, and but I never questioned it. And um, so definitely was very eye-opening from that perspective. And then it made me realize that there's no possible way, obviously, that this is only happening at Bon Appetit. And so it kind of made me think about like, what are all the other ways in which like some version of this inequality and this like really deep seated systemic racism that can be so subtle at some time is happening in other workplaces and just other environments around me. And I think that I'm just much more attuned to it now. It's embarrassing, honestly, that like it took a reckoning, like the one that we had at Bon Appetit to open my eyes, but I'm, you know, in that's like the silver lining of it for me is like I woke up mm-hmm. and and I don't like I don't think I will ever go work for a company again. I think that my takeaway was that I want to make sure that I make the rules and that I run my life and my world and my career and the people around me and the people I hire and all of that. I do it my way and I do it the right way in a way that feels good. And yeah. I don't like the idea of working for a corporation where like you're so in the dark about so much and you're just part of a machine. Um, and so, yeah, I think the biggest thing for me is I'll never go back to working for a big company again. Yeah, that's a big takeaway. Yeah. We're a show on cookbooks, obviously. So I always like to ask folks about uh, about cookbooks beyond the the one that you just wrote and published. And you did a lot of the great legwork for us because you actually list like a couple dozen cookbooks in your cookbook that have been influential to you. Um, so of course, folks can like find that they can go buy your book and find that full list there. But I'm wondering if there's like a, a book or two that have been particularly influential to you or a specific author whose work was influential to you, particularly as a new first time cookbook author, like were there people you turned to to really learn how to do this process? Not so much as a cookbook author, because like I said, like it kind of poured out of me. And so I was like, I, I, I sort of like, figured out what I wanted to say. And there was part of me also at that point that didn't want to like look at other people's books because I didn't want to be influenced by what was already out there. And so um, I remember being like, actually like kind of avoiding bookstores for a while while I was writing because I was like, I want to stay in my zone here. But in terms of like forming me as a cook, this, I mean, this one is really nerdy. And so I just, I don't know that like it's it's not for everyone, but on food and cooking by Harold McGee, I just like find so fascinating. So yeah, Harold McGee is a food scientist, and therefore he breaks down like everything about everything in the world of cooking scientifically. So and and I do believe that like obviously 
science is such a big part of it. And if you can get a grasp on some of that science, there are so many parallels and conclusions to be drawn within cooking once you have like that foundation. And so that's part of like why I, I wrote the book the way I did is like, a- like a- answering the questions as to why some of that is like light food science. And that's important in, yeah. in like inferring the similarities and differences between things you're doing in the kitchen and between one recipe and another. That book was huge for me um, when I was like first starting to collect cookbooks and like really getting into cooking. And then the other one is the flavor Bible, which I don't really, Mm -hmm. um, I don't really refer to it anymore because I feel like I've had so much experience just eating and thinking about ingredients and food. Um, And I, and I'm so, I really like every time I eat, I'm definitely like thinking critically about what I'm eating. And so like, I feel like I have a lot of that knowledge within me now, but the flavor Bible lists out literally every ingredient under the sun. It's insane how comprehensive it is. And then it lists out ingredients that are complementary that like might go well together. So it's really helpful when you're like stuck in a rut and you're like, I have grapes and chicken, like what else can I make here? To, sure. to like consult that book for inspiration. And so that was like, you know, I touched on some of that kind of stuff in my book and my inspiration list, but the flavor Bible is like, it's a Bible. I mean, it is super comprehensive yeah. and really will open your mind to flavor pairing. Yeah, those are great picks. Well, we always end with little games. So we use these cards and I know you and Carla, Carla Lolly Music, play this game. Am I getting it right? It's called You Got Snacked? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So it's kind of, we're going to play like kind of a version of that, but it doesn't need to be like a snack. It can, you can go any direction with this. Um, So we have four types of cards. We have protein cards, self-explanatory vegetable cards, flavor, which is like uh, spices, herbs, flavoring agents, and then a secret ingredient deck, which can be kind of like a very obscure ingredient or just sort of like a random kitchen uh, pantry staple. So we're going to pretend that you, you know, you and Carla have been doing this like in the pandemic, right? So like you'll ship each other groceries. (laughs) So we're going to pretend that we're opening up your grocery delivery and that's what you have to work with and tell us what you might make. Okay. Does that sound? Okay. So the cards represent the ingredients in my delivery. Exactly. Yep. And you can assume you have like, you know, a stocked kitchen. Otherwise, like you have pantry staples and things. Um, Do you want to do just like one of each? Sure. Okay. Um, All right. Let's pick a protein. Protein we have. Oh, my God. I swear this is it's tuna. Um, I swear I didn't stage that. I just drew from the middle. What are the odds? Okay. Okay, Tuna is our protein. (laughs) Uh, Vegetable is beets. The flavor we have in our bag to work with is ginger. Mm. And our secret ingredient is sea urchin. Holy smokes. Okay. All right. So tuna, sea urchin, beets, and ginger. What do we make? Okay. Wow. I mean, this is a wacky one. Am I right? Yeah, it is. <laughs> the sea urchin took a, took us for a twist. Okay. So I'm seeing a rice mm. bowl topped with some quick pickled beets and then yeah. a, and then the rifle is topped with, I'm going to go with like, like raw tuna, not the canned tuna, but like raw sushi grade tuna and sea urchin on my rice bowl. And then I'm drizzling it all in a miso sesame ginger dressing. That's like a little bit spicy and then probably sprinkling it with some sesame seeds. Would eat. 
delicious. Yeah, I would definitely eat that. That's amazing. <laughs> um, should we do one more round? Yeah. Flavor, um, oregano. Okay. The protein we're working with this time is duck. Mm. Our vegetable is cauliflower. Mm-hmm. And our secret ingredient is, oh, the dreaded one, gummy bears. Folks do not like getting this one. I mean, what am I supposed to do with that? <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me see them again. Yeah, what are we going to do? Okay, duck, oregano, cauliflower, and gummy bears. Okay, so I'm going to do a um, I'm gonna do a confit duck leg. So this is mm-hmm. not a snack, to be clear. Like, this is a three-hour no. <laughs> confit duck leg that's then getting crisped up. And then I'm going to serve it with a lo- alongside a pile of cauliflower that's been half roasted and half like thinly sliced raw so it's like somewhere between a slaw and the side of roasted cauliflower that gets tossed uh-huh. with a yogurty garlicky oregano dressing so i don't know if you've ever been to yeah. jack's wife frida in new york city but they do this like side of cauliflower that's half fried half raw and then they toss it all in aioli and it's very delicious so i'm kind of like taking inspiration yeah. from that and then uh-huh to end the meal, some gummy bears because I'm just not putting gummy <laughs> yeah. bears on my duck. <laughs> I know. I, res- I respect that. I respect that. It's a, a good call. <laughs> um, well, that, that was great. Thank you so much, Molly, for joining us on Salt and Spine. This was so much fun. Thank you for having me. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on our website, saltandspine.com. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. You can also leave us a rating on iTunes and join the Salt and Spine community and support our show at patreon.com. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our intern, Clea Worster. Our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen is now offering digital classes for home cooks. Find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, to Monique at Hardcover Cook, and to Celia at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. Thank you.